Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just a quick note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cobride. Another busy week this week. Sanctions, money laundering, fraud, cyber and a bit of regulatory enforcement. More life-affirming content from the world of financial crime. Let's make a start. As ever, the links are in the podcast description where identified. Start this week with sanctions. This week, usual bits and pieces on sanctions, but we start at COP27 which has been going on in Egypt. Global leaders met in Sharm el-Sheikh to seek to progress on climate strategies to reduce the threat to life posed by the global impact of climate change. While this would not ordinarily be the subject of this podcast, The Guardian reports this week that the Russian delegation consists of individuals sanctioned as part of the global response to the invasion of Ukraine. It reports, and I quote, Among those listed as part of the Russian delegation at the pivotal climate talks are the billionaire and former aluminium magnate Oleg Deripaska, who's under UK sanctions, and the billionaire Andrei Melnichenko, the founder and former board member of the Swiss-headquartered fertiliser company Eurochem Group, who's been targeted with individual sanctions by the European Union. Melnichenko has disputed the sanctions, calling them absurd and nonsensical. Well, of course he has. To the US, where sanctions have been imposed aimed at targeting Russian military procurement networks, this follows the imposition of similar sanctions against Iranian military personnel and companies alleged to have supplied drones to Russia, Russia, which were subsequently used to attack Ukraine. These latest sanctions, according to the press release, operate against a, quote, transnational network procuring technology that supports the Russian military-industrial complex. OFAC also designated a global network of financial facilitators, enablers and other associated others associated with two key Kremlin-linked elites whose fortunes are intertwined with the West. In total, today's sanctions designated 14 individuals and 28 ent- ident- entities and identified eight aircraft as blocked property. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Sticking with North America and very much linked to this story, although frankly I could put it in a few places this week, this is the news that Canada has also announced sanctions against Iran for its supply of weapons for use against Ukraine and for its human rights violations and I'll say more on that again in a moment. I'll stick with Russia again Only this time, Russia has been issuing the sanctions specifically against Canadians and what has been described as the Russophobic Government of Canada. On the list, which frankly is a real hodgepodge of folk, are Jim Carrey and Margaret Atwood. There's a pub quiz question for future generations. Also on the list are current and former Canadian officials. There are, apparently, over 1,000 Canadians currently sanctioned by Russia. Back to Iran now, and this time it's sanctions from the European Union, which are the bloc's response to the recent suppression of protests following the death of Masa Amini at the hands of the Iranian morality police. The UK has also announced coordinated sanctions for the same reasons. The link to the UK government 
announcement is in the podcast description. In a further example of coordination, only this time against Russia and not Iran, the UK and what's described as the Price Cap Coalition, G7 and Australia that is, has agreed new crude and refined oil sanctions against Russia. The press release provides as follows. We're collectively banning the import of Russian oil and oil products into our markets and we're further banning UK services including finance, insurance and shipping from enabling the seaborne transport of Russian oil and oil products globally. To enable oil to continue to flow in a tight market, we're creating a price cap exception to the services ban. This will permit UK and coalition partners services to continue facilitating the transport of Russian oil and product by sea to and between third countries if sold at or under an agreed price, which is the price cap. The aim of introducing a price cap, the level of which will be determined by coalition countries, is to reduce Russian oil revenues and Russia's ability to fund illegal war in Ukraine through inflated global oil prices, whilst enabling oil to continue to flow to the third countries that need it. Link to the full announcement is in the podcast description. Now away from sanctions and to money laundering. Bit of a quiet week, not much going on, but we start in Guernsey. The office of the director of the Economic and Financial Crime Bureau has had its powers clarified by a change to the law. The link to the press release from the government of Jersey, sorry, Guernsey, oh, I'll never be let in now, is in the podcast description. The Money Laundering and Terrorist Finance High Risk Countries Amendment No. 3 Regulations 2022 SI No. 1183 came into force on the 15th of November this week. The regulations and the explanatory note are in the podcast description. Like I said, very quiet week on money laundering. Now we turn our attention to fraud and this story very much hot off the press. So we'll start with the US, where the former CEO of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, has been sentenced to 11 years imprisonment for her part in the fraud perpetrated on investors in her medical diagnosis company. Investors were conned into believing that the investment was being used to support a groundbreaking new blood test, which gave results in minutes from only a small sample of the patient's blood. Earlier in the hearing, Holmes had asked for leniency, a request, it is now clear, which fell on deaf ears. We come back to the UK for, net, for yet another story relating to fraud in the bounce-back loan scheme. There are so many of these that, frankly, they could have a podcast series on their own, although it would become a bit repetitive. This week, it's a Northeast Telecoms design and installation business called Netelco Limited, which received 25,000 in bounce-back loan schemes only to file for paperwork for dissolution of the business the day after payments were received into its bank account. Ben Hamilton, the company director, was sentenced to 15 months imprisonment with the term suspended for 18 months. Link to the Insolvency Service website announcement is in the podcast description. In an interesting authorised push payment fraud story this week, the Payment Systems Regulator, the PSR, and the Lending Standards Board, the LSB, have published a memorandum of understanding to record the framework for cooperation and communication between them in the PSA, PSR's role as the governing body for the Contingent Reimbursement Model Code for APP, that is Authorised Push Payment Scams. The link to them is in the podcast description.
This week, the National Audit Office in the UK has published its report, Progress Combating Fraud. To be frank, this is worth a deeper look, so since I haven't produced a special for a while, you can expect one this week, probably on Thursday. Gives me a chance to read the report in full, all 50 pages, and put the podcast together. In the meantime, if you can't wait for that, you're too excited to get into it, the link to the report is available in the podcast description. Finally on fraud this week, some good news, but it's only good news of sorts, with the announcement from the UK that the Criminal Cases Review Commission has had the has um, crushed, quashed the conviction for fraud of uh, an individual who was convicted of fraud by abuse of position under the Fraud Act 2006. This is a one of the notorious post office prosecutions, and the prosecution relied on data from the now discredited computer system which was used by the post office to make several allegations of fraud resulting in the wrongful conviction of several post office employees. In total, some 63 cases were reviewed or referred to the Criminal Cases Review Commission and 57, 57 convictions overturned. I said it was only good news of sorts because, of course, this should not have happened in the first place. The link to the story is in the podcast description. Now, a little bit on market abuse this week. We don't usually do much on market abuse, but here we go. In the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission has announced uh, its data for the fiscal year 2022, where it states that it filed 760 enforcement actions against firms and individuals. This, the press release notes, is a 9% increase on the previous fiscal year. In total for the period, the SEC notes that a total of 6.4 billion US dollars has been recorded or recovered in a range of recovery types for market abuse activity. The link to the full press release is in the podcast description. Now, while we're on market abuse, it's worth flagging an article in City AM on Wednesday, the 16th of November this week. The article concerns the recent cases concerning the use of WhatsApp, the end-to-end encrypted messaging service by bankers to discuss deals and trades where discussions are not typically monitored. The article is an interesting read and certainly worth taking two or three minutes to read it and the link I have provided in the podcast description. A couple of mop-up stories now. As we covered in episode 29 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, the investigation into the alleged market abuse in relation to Worthington PLC continues with the announcement this week that a trial date has been set for the 2nd of September 2024. It is expected that the trial will last some four months. The link to the announcement, although there isn't much more information than I've just given you, the link to the announcement is nevertheless in the podcast description. And finally, on market abuse this week, the European Securities and Markets Authority has published its report detailing administrative and criminal sanctions and other administrative measures imposed under the market abuse regulation in 2021. The link to the report is provided in the podcast description. Now we move to a bit of cyber news. And for that, we go down under to Australia, where the government is to launch a joint task force with the 
the task, the job of targeting cyber attacks which pose a risk to essential public services and which can compromise personal data. The new body will be comprised of the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Signals Directorate. This comes on the back of redoubled efforts to combat the very real threat of cyber attacks across jurisdictions, including recently in various parts of the United Kingdom and the US. Sticking with Australia, where the government is also considering legislation to make payment of cyber ransoms illegal. This shift in attitude follows the cyber attack on Medibank and Optus, which resulted in compromised personal data. As a matter of good practice, victims of a cyber attack, and I mean victim corporations because there are wider victims, notably those who lose their data, but I mean victims, the primary victims of the cyber attack, the corporation, should avoid paying a ransom, not least because of the legal risk to which they are themselves exposed by such payment, but as we've discussed previously on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, payment of a ransom does not always guarantee a swift resolution of issues. Remember, these are criminals you're dealing with in relation to ransomware attacks. They're probably not necessarily going to be trustworthy. Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm just old school in thinking that criminals aren't trustworthy. Now to corruption. We'll start and, I suppose, end with the publication from Trace, the non-profit international association committed to anti-bribery. This week they've published the 2022 Bribery Risk Matrix. The matrix measures business bribery risk in 194 jurisdictions, territories and autonomous and semi-autonomous regions. The overall country risk score is a combined and weighted score of four domains. This is all a quotation from their website. Business interactions with government, the first one. Anti-bribery deterrence and enforcement, second one. The third one is government and civil service transparency. And finally, the capacity for civil society oversight, including the role of the media. Top of the squeaky clean pile is Norway, followed by New Zealand second, Sweden third, Switzerland fourth, and Denmark fifth. While the bottom five are from fifth from the bottom to bottom, Venezuela, Syria, Equatorial Guinea, Turkmenistan, and holding everyone up at the bottom is North Korea. The link to the full risk matrix is in the podcast description. I end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by turning to regulatory enforcement, principally in the United Kingdom. There's a couple of bits of decent, interesting bits of regulatory enforcement. First, a public censure has been issued against Mohammed Atar Rahman Prodan, the former chief executive officer of Sonali Bank UK Limited, because of AML failings, that is, anti-money laundering failings. Uh, Prodan had responsibility for establishing and maintaining effective AML systems and controls, but that between the 7th of June 2012 and the 4th of March 2014, he failed to take reasonable steps to assess and mitigate the AML risks associated from a culture of non-compliance among the bank's staff. The press release goes on. He failed to ensure that there was a clear allocation of responsibilities to oversee the bank's branches, and he also failed properly to oversee, manage and resource the bank's 
money laundering reporting officer function. And finally this week, a reminder that it is not merely your financial nose which you have to keep clean as an authorised person under the Financial Conduct Authority's oversight, but that the FCA expects only the highest standards of proprietary in all that those who work in financial services do. This week, the FCA announced that they have banned Ashkan Zahedian from working in financial services following his conviction for a serious assault on a bar employee. Mark Stewart, the executive director of enforcement and market oversight, said, chillingly as a reminder, I suppose, for anybody authorised, those authorised to provide financial services are required to meet and maintain high standards of character, fitness and properness. These were serious violent criminal offences reflecting on Mr Zahidian's character and justifying the finding that he is not a person to be working in financial services. The FCA will continue to uphold high standards of character and conduct for those working in financial services. The link to both of those enforcement actions taken by the Financial Conduct Authority this week, you'll find them in the podcast description, but I suspect you already knew that anyway. That's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being very well indeed, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. 